everyone and welcome to episode 12 of zoology ramblings um, with emma and roby hello so i don't know why i'm waving because this isn't a video podcast Sorry. i know we got really confused because we're doing a video podcast as well but um back to back to ramblings this week and we mentioned this briefly before but we have some really really exciting news so we have been selected along with seven other podcasts as part of what's called the spotify next wave winners so basically what this was it was open to all students i think globally and there were over four thousand applicants to this next wa- next wave initiative and oh my god i know lot. and only that's slightly terrifying <laughs> And only eight were selected as kind of the the top ones. And we're super, super thrilled that Zoology Ramblings was selected in... I have no idea how or why that happened. I don't know why people listen to us. Animals, but <laughs> we're glad you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, and so we, I guess just to say a huge congratulations as well to the other seven um, podcasts who won. Oh, yeah, massively. Um, they look absolutely fantastic. So we'll provide the link to the um, Student Hub Centre um, and you can also see some stuff on our social medias later. Do you know what? I've, I've been looking through uh, some of these other Next Wave ones and I, I can't wait to listen to them and see what fellow students around the world are, um, are, are talking about. The one I want to listen to most, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure we can say it because it's all been released now, um, Vanilla Extract, mm. which I think is a really good, a really good night, uh, title name. Um, and it's uh, a student who talks about challenging pressing issues in society, um, mental health, body acceptance, climate change, all these things through what I think are quite nice um, kind of vulnerable uh, conversations. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that one um, and actually just listening to it because I don't really listen to that many podcasts. So I'm really going to get into it now that, now that I feel I have emotion. Yeah, no, me too. And I feel like if anyone's looking for some new podcast ideas, they really do cover such a diverse range mm. of topics. So like you mentioned with, with mental health, there's also one about the stigma of failure and how we can use that to kind of improve ourselves which sounds really interesting love that um there's things um there's one about the like crises that affect the black community so very um very important topics to talk Mm. about at the moment Mm. um there's one about sustainable fashion and kind of how fashion plays a role with the future of the planet um and there's even one discussing um nativity paintings and history of santa claus so (laughs) niche and they say we're niche <laughs> so and also a tech one as well like latest tech updates oh, cool. um so yeah you're definitely not you're spoiled for choice there if you want some new new <laughs> podcasts um and yeah so that announcement will have gone out today by the time that you listen to this podcast so check them all out it's fantastic and we're so so happy that we were selected for that and we also wanted to kind of do a bit of a shout out to all you guys who listen to us. Uh, God knows why, but thank you and keep going <laughs> um, if you enjoy us. Uh, and, you know, we had no idea until we looked at like some of the analytics about where people were listening to us. Because I thought it was just, you know, 
our mates. <laughs> but no, we've got people from all over the world helping us grow, which is really, really cool. Um, the one uh, we, we basically typed out this list of where people listening to listen to us. Finland and Latvia are on the list. Shout out to the gang in Finland and Latvia. I've, uh, you know, I don't know who you are, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got sort of Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, that part of the world. So huge shout mm. out to our listeners in in Asia. Um, Do you know, I might know one, one maybe maybe I know the person in Malaysia. I have a hmm. friend, uh, well, an old friend who lives in Malaysia. So that might be them. If it's not, and you are the Malaysian <laughs> listener listening to me, you're a friend in my heart. <laughs> oh, um. that's lovely. <laughs> And then also some Latin America as well on there. You've got Ooh. Mexico. Woo, big up Mexico. Hey. <laughs> um, For the record, Emma's a Mexican. <laughs> just, yeah, in case you didn't know that. Um, there's Guatemala, Dominican Republic. Um, oh, other ones. Oh, Nicaragua as well. Um, oh, I'd love to go to Nicaragua. There's a real oh, assortment your... of, of countries. It's fantastic. Taiwan. Oh yeah. Never been to Taiwan. Don't know anyone in <laughs> Taiwan. Thank you to the listeners in Taiwan who are interested in zoology. <laughs> <laughs> what other ones have we got? Oh, we've got some Italy. Um, Italy. We've got some. Um... <laughs> some Italy. Yeah, we've got we've got. Italy, we've got some European got. ones. That's what I meant to say. So <laughs> some of our mates here in the UK, um, and then Norway, Italy, Netherlands, Switzerland, Denmark. Ooh. Um, Estonia, fantastic! Oh yeah, and Iceland. Woo! That's also probably one of your gangs. Yeah, probably some of the Arctic Fox people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think. Do I know anyone? I might. Yeah, I might know some of the Spanish, the Spanish Mm. ones. We've got some family out in Spain. That's quite cool. But it's so so exciting. Um, I think just to see that there's people listening all around the world. We're so so thrilled that we've reached this many people on a global scale. Um, and hopefully next wave also will help spread our message further that's our whole aim of this podcast is to raise Mm -hmm. awareness about conservation and spread these wider messages Um, and also I think we should do a shout out to to Madeline um, who is the graphic designer um, who has done our most recent cover art so you can see she's done this amazing kind of sketchbook style cover art so thank you so much Um, thank you very much (laughs) we love it it's been fantastic working with you (laughs) we love it (laughs) And also quite impressive because we were, you know, we were thinking about, oh, maybe we should do sketch and cover up before this whole next wave thing came off. And it's actually really hard, you know, to get all the kind of things. But I, what I love, I love how she just from like one or two conversations with us, she perfectly distilled us onto the page. And I was like, oh, my God, you're amazing. So thank you so much. <laughs> I think it really captures us. I think it's that kind of mm. explorery kind well. of in the field type thing. Um <laughs> So yeah, do we want to explain a little bit how we're going to do the format this week? Because it's a bit different, just we thought we'd make it a casual one. Yeah, and I am aware that, you know, it seems every week now we say we're going to do a different <laughs> format. So sorry if you were, you know, expecting standardisation. Um, we've been very, very busy with lots of wildlife filming projects that we've been doing at the moment. So we're going to tell you a little bit about one of those. And then we're going to do two Animal of the Weeks. And hopefully next week when we do our next recording, we can go back to our Animal of the Week, UK Conservation, Global Conservation. Um do we want to talk about maybe our, our, our filming first, just to give a little explanation of how how and why we've been AWOL? <laughs> yeah, I think that, that sounds good. So um, <laughs> when was it? Was was it last weekend or the weekend before? Um, I don't know. COVID has yeah, blurred Yeah, I lose track. I don't even know what day it is today, so <laughs> it bodes well. Um, 
But basically, a couple of weeks ago, or last week, whatever it was, Roby and I and the other co-host on the Biome Project, Kate, um, we decided to go on a little adventure. <laughs> and so we went down to Devon. So that's somewhere here in the UK for our global listeners. Um, it's like the pointy bit. It's, it's the pointy bit down to the left. <laughs> Is how I think of it. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's not as far as Cornwall, but, you know, it's getting there. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it was still quite far. Um, but we basically went on a beaver hunt. Because... Um, <laughs> oh, well, not not a hunt. A hunt to see them, not a hunt to shoot them, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah no, I should, I should have clarified. I feel like in my mind, it's like, woo, let's go photograph the beavers. Because um, we did part one, didn't we? We did um, beavers part one, and this was kind of part two. Yes. And we've talked about beaver reintroduction on Zoology Ramblings, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. I think that was one of our early ones. So, you know, for our listeners who've stayed with us the whole way, uh, and if you haven't, do feel free to check out some of our earlier podcasts. Beavers are very, very near and dear to our hearts because they are a native part of British fauna. Um, as most things have been in our blighted isle, they were driven to extinction at the hand of humanity. Um, and now, through a quite a convoluted and, and you know, quite stereotypically fumbling British process, um, they are coming back here and there. There's illegal releases, there's legal releases, and, you know, you can look at our other podcast to find out the difference between them. Um, so we went down, when was it? It was October, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. To try and glimpse them. Yeah, that was part one. It was one. probably the wrong, yeah, probably the wrong time of year. So we actually made a little vlog video, and you can find it on our Biome Project. If you do www.biome-project.co.uk, Beaver Diaries Part 1 is up there. Um, but we did have some success, didn't we? Yeah, no, d- I would definitely say we did. I, I was just excited seeing the signs of the beavers. So all the kind of mm. pencil-shaped, chewed logs that they'd been cutting down, these tree stumps. Um, we saw the dams, which was amazing. Oh, I love, cool. love, love yeah. the dams. Um, and do you know, I've still got that bag of sh- wood shavings Ooh. that the beavers have gnawn off. But I think they're getting a bit mouldy now. <laughs> Oh, I've got, got one here. H- hands down, Roby is the best giver of <laughs> awesome wildlife things. He gave me a bag of these beaver shavings. <laughs> and Not to mention a bag of vole skulls recently. Yeah, that was... <laughs> Did, have you managed to tell if they're water voles or field voles? Because I can't tell the difference. I've, I've, I've tried very hard, but I have given up. There you go. If there's anyone listening who is a rodent expert and knows how to tell the difference between a water vole skull and a field vole skull do get in touch because we're having a bit of trouble. I think I'm going to try and measure them and look hmm. up if there's specific measurements. But um, yeah, definitely very challenging, but hands down one of the most <laughs> awesome things I've received in the post. It was in this little matchbox yeah. box and it's just full of skulls. <laughs> we're not weird, I promise. So um, that kind of describes our and friendship. So this... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so Beaver Diary Part 1, we did manage to get them on camera traps, but in October, they're primarily nocturnal. So we didn't see them in real life. We did see them in, in camera traps, though, so that was very fun. Um, and so Beavers Part 2, we got reinforcements. We got Kate, yeah. a fellow uh, conservation biologist uh, with the Biome Project, and, you know, amply reinforced, we went down to see them in person. And did we get them in person? You might wonder. And absolutely, yes, we did. We were, I was surprised how many and how easy it was to see them. I didn't think we yeah. would see that many. Um, no. So it's on the River Otter, um, which mm-hmm. is, they've just completed their five year trial period. 
and last year they were given legal access to stay. So along the main path, um, you just they're less than five meters away. They're not really bothered by yeah. people. Um, they're wonderful. And they were actually in a, what, what one of the illegal releases. So you know they weren't legislated by the government. Um, and so this five-year trial period by the University of Exeter was determining whether they can stay or not. Happily, they made the right call and said, yes, of course they can stay. They're a native mammal in a native ecosystem. <laughs> um, and, you know, we had an interview, actually, again, for the Biome Project podcast um, with Derek Gow, who's a leading beaver and waterfowl conservationist and rewilder. And uh, he has some quite interesting opinions. And he was like, ah, oh, we've too much, too much of this legislation. We should just release them everywhere. And actually, going down to the River Otter and seeing how positive people were towards them. I mean, I kind of agree with him. I, I was know? really, really positively surprised about the how local people perceived the beavers. So almost, we were yeah. sat along the trail kind of being nerdy zoologists with our binoculars and cameras <laughs> looking at a, a bush <laughs> hoping to see a beaver. Um, and people would stop and they were asking what are you doing? Are you looking for the beavers? And telling people more about... This is when education is so important, I think. Just a lot of people didn't realise the extent mm. that they were driven to extinction and that they're now being brought back. A lot of people never realised we had them here in the first place. Some people who even lived there. Remember, that there was yeah. someone who was saying, oh, I come down here almost every day and I've never seen them. <laughs> but they were surprisingly stealthy. I mean, we thought, you know, these big fat rodents <laughs> you know hefty they're big they're big animals they're we huge. thought they'd make this great big plop when they go into the water so we could tell where they are but actually they were like stealth beavers that barely a <laughs> like ripple ninja as they beavers. went in it was they were it was it was so you know once they were in the water they they nearly vanished didn't yeah they? no absolutely and um I think they look so much smaller as well in the water because we saw some out on the bank, which was fantastic. And they're mm. huge. Like, I'm not the being discriminatory is... against beaver size in any shape or form, <laughs> but just like ream, like loads of fat rolls um, kind of sitting there scratching. Like, they're really, really big animals. Um, and their, their skin seemed quite loose when they were scratching. I wonder if that's because they've got a layer of fat mm. that actually, you know, when they were scratching, they were kind of, it was almost as if they were wearing a big thick jacket and they'd move the whole thing yeah. as they were scratching. Yeah, no, it was incredible um, seeing that. Um, and I think the best the best part for me, at least, was we did manage to see a big pregnant female and we followed her upstream and we saw her just sitting there eating and reaching up and you could see her engorged nipples and the size of her belly. So she was clearly pregnant mm. and very near, about to give birth. And it was such an effort for her to go upstream. She was, oh... <laughs> She was clambering and she had this massive belly and it was really good because they think that big pink female is one of the original progenitors, the original wild escapees or releases. So it's really cool to see that she's still, uh, you know, reproductive, still carrying that population forward. Because they're doing really well because the local people who we spoke to, they said there was at least two young kits that were born, so really small ones. Mm. And if that one was also pregnant, that's more that are being added to the population there. Um, Although it's interesting that there'd be two reproductive females, presumably on that same stretch of river, which I thought was quite odd. Because that's not entirely what we know about that. Mm. That doesn't entirely fit with what we know about their ecology. And their Unless she'd just given birth and was still like lactating, yeah. which is why she was so big. Um, but she was moving around a lot. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought when they're that little she would have travelled that far I from the lodge. 
I mean, yeah, she was traversing a good kilometre nearly. Maybe, maybe, maybe half a kilometre if we're being conservative. I wouldn't have thought she'd have abandoned them for that long. And that, although uh, they and do have um, quite a tight-knit family grouping system, so I think there is care given mm. by other kin, so it doesn't have to be the mother. Oh, okay. But when they're that little, they do need milk, so yeah, I'm not entirely sure the dynamics. Um <laughs> the dynamics of beavers. <laughs> it's a bit like that book I read, The Metaphysics of Baboons. <laughs> we should write a, The Metaphysics of Beavers. <laughs> we should write The Metaphysics of Beavers. So beans. that should hopefully, we're making Beavers Part 2 as a little mm-hmm. vlog documentary type thing, um, which should be coming out within the next few months. Um, and kind of excitingly, do you want to tell people, Roby, what our plans are for maybe a lo- slightly longer documentary with beavers? Well, we've got so much excellent footage, uh, you know, not to blow one's own trumpet, but we really did. It was amazing. <laughs> I'm so I'm, I'm still slightly in disbelief that we saw this many good beavers um, that we're going to do a kind of more formal, long form documentary, which we're going to try and submit to a wildlife film festival. Um, so that will probably be at the end of summer once we've got some of our other filming projects out of the way. Um, we're going up to Mull in a couple of weeks Yee, to film white-tailed seagulls. <laughs> Um, so yeah, keep an eye out. We'll be posting on our social media about the progress of this beaver film. We'll be having lots of teasers, social bites, all those sorts of things. And again, you can fi- follow the Biome Project, which is the kind of platform which we founded that it will be coming out on. Um, so yeah, that's a little explanation of what we've been up to the last uh, few weeks. Shall we do our Animals of the Week? Yeah, sounds good. Do you want to start, Roby? What are you going to talk about this week? I am going to talk about... The White-Eyed River Martin. Hmm. I, is, is there a reason that I haven't really heard of that? <laughs> yes, and I think there's a reason almost no one has heard of it. I had not heard of it until I was doing some... Uh, I was going on a bit of a tangent and reading about swallows. <laughs> and their... Guess what? Their phylo, phylogeny. Yeah. Um, uh, last week. And I'd never heard of it before. So its its name is Pseudochelodon Sirintare. Named after the, I think, the Crown Princess of Thailand. Ooh. Um, so it is in, in Thailand. It's uh, one of only two endemic Taiwanese birds. Uh, Taiwanese? Thailand. Thailandish? Thai? Thailandian? Thai. <laughs> <laughs> Thai birds. It's one of two endemic species. So here, I'm, I'm just going to show you the photo on the Google Docs. They kind of look weird. They don't look like swallows, do they? Firstly, it doesn't look real. <laughs> <laughs> looks like a model and it's one of those fantastic species where on wikipedia all they've got is like a schematic drawing because that's how rare and how little we know about it so it looks like kind of to my mind a fat black bird with the wings of a swallow mm. a yellow bill big white eyes a white bum patch and then two forked feathers you should absolutely look it up it's a white eyed river martin it's a really, um, yeah, like you say, it's almost like a fusion of different birds. Mm. It definitely give, gives off blackbird vibes, but also got a bit of swallow in there. Um, and a bit of drongo, I see. Yes, I see a little bit of drongo. Yes, I can see drongo as well. I'm just realising that I think my mum's outside the door and is probably overhearing this conversation thinking, oh, what are they talking about? <laughs> I feel um, like that's, that sums most of our conversations <laughs> up. So, the white-eyed river martin, um, it's one of those tantalisingly obscure species, and it's its one of the kind of lost <laughs> species. Sorry, Emma's laughing because all of our university essays, I always get the phrase tantalisingly obscure, 
in there. It's my signature. I think it's a lovely phrase. It is. Phrase. It's absolutely brilliant. It's very, very you, <laughs> Um, And so it was discovered by the famous Thai ornithologist Kitty Tholongia in 1968. And it was discovered at a single nighttime roost on the banks of Lake Bueng Borofet, the largest freshwater lake in Thailand. And he obtained nine specimens as part of a migratory bird survey. And that was the only time it has been seen by ornithologists in the wild. Really? This, Yeah, this one nighttime roost. Um, and so it's actually in, you know, if you look at it, look it up, it looks very different to the other swallows. And that's because it's one of only two members in a subfamily called Pseudochelidoninae. Uh, and there's only obviously one other uh, member, a congener, the African river martin. But it's actually very different from the African river martin, which just looks a bit like a, um, a bit more like a blackbird, actually. So sometimes it's placed in its own gelus, Eurochelidon. Um, and this subfamily is so genetically different, so morphologically different and so widely spaced apart, geographically speaking, that it's likely that these two are the only surviving relics of a group of species that diverged from the main swallow lineage very early mm. on. So that's quite cool. Uh, it, but why why are they so rare then? Or that no one's seen them? Were they persecuted or...? No one really knows. It's one of those intriguing species that just ooh, popped up and was named and then has almost never been seen again. So I'll tell you a bit about its biology. All of these, I'm going to tell you, are question marks. Because we don't know. We, we love not knowing. It's part, part yes. of science. <laughs> <laughs> but judging on the specimens we've got and what we did see of them, we can make some inferences. So like other swallows, it almost certainly fed on insects caught in flight. Um, it's got quite a wide bill gape, which suggests it might take relatively large flying species. Um, Obviously, they've only ever been seen at this one winter nighttime roost, which are the big reed beds of this lake. Um, but other swallow species in the summer nest in river sandbanks. They've never been seen there, but we can make an inference that perhaps mm. it's similar. Um, part of the reason it may have been overlooked for so long was because it may have fed at dusk and dawn rather than during the day. And, you know, if you're thinking about it, how many times have you stood out in a wild place at dusk and dawn and you see a little <laughs> something overhead and, oh, is it a mm. bat? Is it a bee? Is it an insect? Um, and in fact, the, you know, the famous ornithologist Pamela Rasmussen suggested that given its unusually large eyes, it may have even been nocturnal. No, that is an interesting point um, because it does have very distinctive eyes, which I wouldn't say are typical of your kind of just um, diurnal birds. No, they're very, they're very strange. We can probably also say, and again, this is a big probably, it's probably migratory because obviously we've only ever seen it at one winter roost. Um, and, you know, if the African species is anything to go by, it may migrate to forested river valleys with sandbars and islands. And, you know, these river valleys do exist in northern Thailand and southern, southwestern China. But again, we've got no idea if it's there. <laughs> um, and so we don't know if it's been the subject of a massive decline or if it's naturally always rare and we just keep missing it. We don't know. If it is an unnatural decline, it's probably uh, the construction of dams is altering the you know, lake level and river level. So the sandbars, which it might use to nest on, are getting threatened. Flooding of the nesting marshes, draining of the reed beds for agriculture. Um, you know, it was last seen in 1980. 
but we don't know. We don't know if it's extinct, and we did that. We don't know if it was going extinct naturally, mm. and we just caught the last blip. And we don't know if it's still there. We're just either looking in the wrong place. What if that one lake was the furthest outpost of its range, and actually all the other ones are, you know... Maybe we're looking in the wrong place Bangalore. as well. If if they are migratory, exactly. we might be looking for them in Thailand, but they are elsewhere. Exactly. We have. We, there's so much we don't know. Um, people got very excited because this ancient Chinese painting was discovered, which was thought to have this species on it. So maybe. So people thought, oh, maybe you know, it migrates to China. Um, but I think it's been disproved that they were actually Pratt and Coles, which are another weird kind of swallow offshoot type okay. thing. Um, there was an unconfirmed sighting in Thailand in 1986 and a possible Cambodian sighting in 2004. But, you know, this is a, a black swallow against a black sky. And, again, and you know, even if you're looking for it, you're probably going to miss it. And none of these sightings were, you know, confirmed. They weren't by ornithologists. They were by hobbyists. Um, mind you, hobbyists are some of the obviously yeah, best. Yeah, sometimes they know <laughs> so, so much. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you more about the <laughs> white-eyed river martin. IUCN still classifies it as critically endangered. Okay, so they um, haven't haven't declared it extinct. But that's only because mm-hmm. to declare it extinct, we need the statistics. We need to know of, of the previous population size to classify whether it's collapsed by more than 80% over the, the yearly threshold. So there's quite a few species which are almost definitely extinct can't be classified as extinct because we don't have the original population size well i suppose if they've only been seen and recorded that kind of one time by that one ornithologist (laughs) that's not much data to go off and it there is something odd happening with the swallows of thailand because this um Oh my god, that's such a weird <laughs> sentence. Sounds like. It's... Do you remember that Doctor Who episode where they were like, "There's something wrong with the spider ecosystem oh, in Sheffield. North Yorkshire"? <laughs> okay, in Sheffield. <laughs> I remember thinking, "Wow." Um, so Bueng Borofat Lake was historically a massive haven for dozens of aerial swallow species, but in about a decade from 1970 to 1980s, the swallow population collapsed from around 100,000 to at maximum 8,000. Mm, so that's again, affected. We'd... A vast range of, of species and not just this obscure one that we don't know if it exists <laughs> or not. But again, we don't know if this is a real decline or it's just a shift in, um, you know, a shift in a shift in habitat because of human pressures or a natural range ship contraction expansion. Basically, not enough people are researching the swallows of Thailand. Should we go? Should we try? And... Let's. <laughs> I feel like we've we've been on this tangent for a while, but we love the idea of going looking for and trying to film and document these very obscure species that <laughs> no one really knows. They haven't seen them for decades. It's like yes, let's go find them. What was the other one? The night parrot. We wanted to go find. Oh, the night parrot of Australia. In fact, I'll do an episode of Zoology Ramblings on the night parrot. Haven't I already done one? I, f- I, I, I seem to remember we parrot. talked about the night parrot. <laughs> I'm sure. Do you know what? I'm going to go on to Zoology Ramblings now because I can't believe I haven't talked about the night parrot quite early on. Mobularis, Hyrcticatanas, sloths, bats. Oh, maybe I haven't done the night parrot. Right, that's it. I'm doing night parrot next time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if we've mentioned it, they deserve to be mentioned again because... Of course, awesome. we love the night. <laughs> so yeah, that was my animal of the week, a bird we know almost nothing about, which made my job quite easy. <laughs> Emma, what are you going to talk about for your animal of the week? <laughs> so w- 
whereas your one is very obscure and very rare, um, the thing <laughs> I'm going to talk about comes out in their trillions. So they're very plentiful. Um, <laughs> so this week I'm going to talk about cicadas. Um, do you say cicada, cicada, Roby? What do you say? I think Americans say cicada. Uh, I Brits say cicada. I would imagine it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think cicada sounds a bit weird, but I think no offense to our Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cicada, cicada, whatever you want to call it. Um, you say tomato, they say tomato. No, other way around. <laughs> we say tomato, they say tomato. Potato, potato. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all the same thing. It's what we're talking about that that matters. So, <laughs> this was actually a suggestion from one of our listeners, Haley. Um, so big shout out to Haley if you're listening. So thank you for the awesome suggestion. We had this brilliant conversation on Instagram about cicadas and how they're awesome and how they stay underground. Um, Ooh, lovely. So yeah. Um, really, really, <clears throat> excuse me, really, really enjoyed doing the research for them. And we thought we should do them justice by talking about them on a podcast. Um, <laughs> and so just wanted to mention at that point that we're always happy to take suggestions of weird and wonderful topics that you guys <laughs> want to hear about. Um, yes, please do get in touch. We'd love, especially if you're, a, you know, uh, if you're, the, the, the one listener we have in Taiwan or Estonia and you'd like us to talk about something uh, that you have in Taiwan and Estonia and we have no idea about because we're locked on a cold, windy island <laughs> in the middle of the North Sea, uh, please tell us. We'd love to get to know more about all the kind of weird and wonderful wildlife all around the world that our listeners know about and we know nothing about. No, we'd love that because we're always up for learning learning new things about new animals because um, that's what we mm. love doing. Um, so... <laughs> If you don't know what a cicada is, they are insects in the order Hemiptera. Um, so mm, any true bugs? Yes, they're true bugs, yeah. aren't they? Hemiptera. So yeah. actually, this is a bit confusing because we tend to refer to all insects as bugs in common English, especially in American English. But technically, it's only a true bug if it fits into this Hemiptera um, order. So and is. What's the do, do we is I can't I we did do this in in in, in lectures. Hemipteran is that because they've only got two wings or something? Is it a wing thing with hemipteran? Um, wings is a defining feature. So just to give you an idea of some that fit into that group. So shield bugs, aphids. I think it's they have the the wing partition in the middle, and then it's also something to do with their mouth parts as well. There's lots of defining um, yeah, characteristics, which yeah, 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 yeah. I think you should look up because we've obviously forgotten since we did this at university. <laughs> um, also, I've I've never been an insect expert. I leave that to entomologists. <laughs> <laughs> but that I think this insects are so broad. That's the thing. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around them. Um, and but this group Hemiptera is huge. It contains over eighty thousand different species. Um, and cicadas are just one of... There are several different species of cicada that fit into that group. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm actually going to do a roby, and I'm going to throw a bit of taxonomy <laughs> in there because I think it's useful. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be as good as yours, don't worry. <laughs> so cicadas are part of a super family, and that is actually divided into two different families. So we're actually only going to focus on one of those families today, that's Cicadidae, um, which has more than 3,000 species. So the other family it. only has two extant species, I think, which is in the Australia oh, area. 
Oh, everything's weird down there. Yeah, they have the weird and wonderful. <laughs> probably a Gondwanan relic. <laughs> love a gon love a Gondwanan relic. They're my favourite kind of relic. I mean, yeah. What other relics do you have? Um, <laughs> but we're going to focus on that one with that's got lots and lots of species in. Um, and so, out of these three thousand species of cicadas, they kind of fall broadly into two categories. So you've got your annual cicadas, which kind of come out every year and they're found throughout the world. And then you have your periodical cicadas. And they're the ones that maybe you've heard of because they're so obscure that they spend most of their lives <laughs> underground. And these are largely restricted to North America. They're only really found in, in that part of the world. Um, so most cicadas go through life cycles that last from two to five years. But you do have these this unique genus in North America um, that either goes through 17-year or 13-year cycles. Um, wow. I mean, I remember I used to live in, in North America, in D.C., and I remember we had the cicadas come out every year, and one year everyone got very excited because it was the 17-year mm-hmm. brood, and they were everywhere. You couldn't get to sleep at night because they wouldn't bleed and shut up. <laughs> This can all night. I mean, I bet that was incredible, but also infuriating at the same time. (laughs) It was quite infuriating, yeah. But I think what's interesting, like you were saying, when when you have those mass emergences, and we've actually got one happening at the moment, which we're going to tell you about. Mm. Um, So they come out in what's known as broods. So this is a mixed cohort of, I think it can be up to three different species, maybe more which all wow. synchronise their timing to emerge simultaneously at the same time. Um, wow. And it's in their billions, so it's huge, huge numbers all coming out at the same time. Um, but just to put into context what that means, if they're a 17-year brood or a group, um, it means that the, the, the nymph stages of the cicada actually live underground and just feed for 17 years. Um, and then <laughs> they come out um emerge as adults they molt into their adult state and then they have two to four weeks to live in which time they have to find a mate and pass on their genes to the next generation so that's kind of what you're saying all that loud buzzing that's like (laughs) the males who are trying to um find a mate um and so i was looking into a bit more why do they come out sort of in their billions or their trillions what is the purpose of living underground for 17 years and then coming out um so it's thought that it's kind of been a response to predation and there are other reasons as well but if you were a predator you there's no way you could be a specialist on this type of cicada because you would starve. Oh, that's true. You, you cannot wait 17 <laughs> years to, to feed on your prey. Um, and also there's this idea that when you have loads and loads emerging at the same time, it's really actually quite hard for predators to pick off enough to have a significant impact on the population. There are too many. So overall, even if some are taken, the species does really well. Um, that's so interesting. This 17-year cycle is all about predation that's so cool yeah no i find i found that really fascinating um and obviously you do get predators that make a shift once this happens because it's this huge flux of food so there will be lots that are eaten and taken but when there are billions maybe possibly trillions <laughs> of them um it doesn't really matter um 
And so you were talking about that, the, the call of the cicada, um, which is very, very distinctive. Um, so it's sort of this buzzing and clicking noise. Um, and it kind of, when they're, that was really good. Um, <laughs> I was going to play one on YouTube, but I feel I don't need to now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should definitely play one on YouTube. So actually when lots of them um, sing at the same time, it creates this really loud humming noise so i'm just gonna open it up on youtube very cool (laughs) it sounds like someone's got you know those little wooden things where you go when you were you know the little frog with the little thing yeah you know (laughs) <laughs> no, I just I think it's a it's a really distinctive noise, and I think if you've heard it before, if you hear one, you automatically tune in and be like, oh, that, I know what that is. Um, and so actually, the sounds they make are distinct to different species, so they're species specific. Um, and actually, interesting fact is they can sometimes be so loud that it can hurt, um, damage human eardrums. <laughs> <laughs> because they can go up to a really, really um, high decibel um, range. <laughs> the insects are fighting back. And um, it's actually only the males that make noise. Um, so the females oh, really? will um, flick their wings in response to the male songs, but it's only the males that are making this this call. And the reason it's so loud is they have this... Oh, I don't know if it's an organ. It's a structure in their abdomen, and it kind of amplifies the sound all throughout the abdomen which is why it sounds so loud um and so just i guess some other defining characteristics if you want to go cicada hunting (laughs) um (laughs) they have these really large see-through membranous wings and really prominent eyes their wings are stunning really really stunning um and because you actually mentioned you you have some of these exoskeletons, don't you, Obi, from when they shed their, their outer layer? Yeah, but there are obviously no wings on the exoskeleton. It's the, it's the exoskeleton of the nymph mm. form. So they come out of the ground as nymphs, climb up a tree, and then emerge as a beautiful butter cigar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they're fantastic. Yeah, they're great. Um. So there's a really interesting article, actually, that came out about (laughs) cicadas and psychedelics. (laughs) Ooh, fun. So this is actually a really recent article. It came out two days ago. Um, And it was about these cicadas being infected with a psychedelic fungus. Um, (laughs) Cicadas being infected by magic mushrooms. What will nature come up with next? (laughs) Oh, I just, I thought it was brilliant. I was very amused reading this article. Um, and so it's mainly affects these periodic cicadas. So the ones that emerge every 17 or 13 years. So sounds quite gruesome, actually what it does. So it causes the bugs to eat away their insides, but at the same time also increases their sex drive. Um, so yeah. So apparently this fungus lies dormant in the soil until these cicadas emerge and then if it's ingested, what it causes, what, what it triggers basically is the male cicada will sing. So it's normal, that loud call that you, you heard. But it will also flick its wings, which is the thing that the females normally do. 
So right. it fools the other male cicadas to think that this is a female that wants to mate. So it attracts oh. loads of other males and they're all doing this. So it's this massive like mating <laughs> frenzy. Um, and what? so the fungus actually causes castration in male cicadas and it replaces this... Um, I guess the abdominal region where you you would have had the sex organs with this fungal mass. And so what happens when this other males come and try and mate with what they think is the female, that's how the spores spread of this fungal disease because it's spread through contact. Um, so it causes castration, but also increases the sex drive. That's just and also a bit makes cruel. the males act like females. So it's a whole interesting <laughs> breaking down all the boundaries. I love it. <laughs> so yeah, that was um interesting article. If you want to check that out about um psychedelic cicadas. Um, <laughs> Sounds like the name of a nightclub, the psychedelic cicadas. Be a good name for a band, actually. It would. It would. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever start one, you know, we've got a name. Um. And then, so just to end, I guess, very excitingly, there's a brood of periodic cicadas, which only comes out every 17 years. And so these are also known as the Great Eastern Brood. Um, Oh, it sounds like something out of sci-fi. I know, it's weird, isn't it? And they have just started emerging. Um, So it's been 17 years since they last emerged in these large numbers. And the next time they come out will not be until 2038. Um, Ooh, so it's kind of a really, cool. really amazing wildlife spectacle. Because you actually got to see that, didn't you? One of these large brood events. Yeah, everyone was making a big fuss out of it. Um, I was quite young at the time, so I don't really remember the, which brood it was. But every, yeah, it was one of the 17-year ones. Mm. And everyone was like, oh my gosh. And there were a lot of cigars around, I can tell you that. <laughs> kept flying into my window at night. But it's huge. I mean, so in some areas, they're expected to be 1.5 million cicadas per acre emerging from wow. the ground. <laughs> which is wow. quite impressive. So like you mentioned, Roby, there's... <laughs> So brood 10 is the largest of, there's 12 broods of 17-year cicadas, and they all emerge in different years. So this happens to be brood 10's year to, to come out. Um, and it's also called the Great Hatching of 2021, and it's kind of thought that these maybe warmer soil temperatures have been the trigger um, for them coming out. And so they are kind of spread over north, the northeast of the USA, so including New York and Washington, as well as the mm. Midwest and West Virginia. So Ooh. if there are any listeners out there from the eastern <laughs> US, keep an eye out for billions, if not trillions, of cicadas that are digging their way out of the dirt. They'll be molting into their adult form, so there'll be loads of exoskeletons all over the ground. Then they'll go to the tops of the trees sing really loudly it could burst your eardrums hurt your eardrums <laughs> and then they'll mate and then they'll die and then the ground will be covered with dead cicadas <laughs> so it's, it's funny you say keep an eye out i don't think you can miss them <laughs> they're quite everywhere they're quite prevalent yeah i thought it'd be quite impressive if if you didn't see them if you're in one of these areas <laughs> um but it has been described as this amazing um wildlife spectacle so Thanks so much again, Hayley, for this suggestion. I learned a lot um, doing this and I would love to see them in real life at some point. Um, This, maybe 2038. (laughs) 2038, let's go. We'll put it in the diary. (laughs) 
So yeah, thank you very much for listening to this latest, I think it's episode 12, yeah. isn't it? Episode 12 of Zoology Ramblings with me, Roby Watkinson, and you, Emma Hodgson. Um, I say you, I don't mean the viewers, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, if you would like to check out more of our content, you can check out our Instagrams where we post a lot of cool wildlife things. We've got lots of exciting new things happening with Mull. Uh, so that is Emma Hodson Wildlife at Emma Hodson Wildlife and at Roby Watkinson Wildlife on Instagram. And if you'd like to check out our other podcast, which is more kind of a video podcast, and we do lots of filmmaking on there as well, lots of wildlife filmmaking, you can see our new beaver diary when it's up. Uh, that is Biome, the Biome Project on Instagram and www.biome-project.co.uk is the website. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you to all our worldwide <laughs> listeners. Um, and we will see you next see time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.